Hop up for 8 o'clock at the Greater 3 UZ Sammy Show for Friday night. Okay, the time is 22 before 9, 12.72 SM with Ian Macrae in the morning. For AP and Kevin Hillier, Sunday morning, out for a couple of showers later today and a top of 25. Well, it's 27 past 12 right now. This is Laurie Bennett at 2SM. At 24 to 8 with Peter Grayson, town at the moment 17 degrees. Hi, hi, Victoria. Stand the man. Hello. Welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to speak to the people behind the voices who are friends to a whole generation. And today's guest has enjoyed a stellar career that has lasted over 65 years and he's still going strong. From booth announcing at GTV9 to reminiscing on Remember When, Philip Brady is a Melbourne media icon. Sharing it all with a friend, Hey, Philip Brady, welcome to Pilots, and thanks for joining us. Oh, Paul, pleasure. Nice to be on board. Now, as we said, six and a half decades in the industry, so much to cover, such little time to do it in. So let's go right back to those school days at Xavier College here in Melbourne, son of a well-respected psychiatrist. So did your parents have any expectations as to what direction your career might take, maybe even tertiary education? Well, I was lucky enough to win a Commonwealth Government scholarship, which would have taken me through university, but I was so keen to get into radio that I bypassed that uh, scholarship, and I'm wondering, Paul, if it's still valid. I'm wondering if I approach the registrar now, 65 years later, if he'll tell me, yes, come and join us. (laughs) But uh, the the story was that uh, from a very early age, I was very single-minded. All I wanted to be was a radio announcer. There were no DJs in my youth, and uh, my grandparents had a wind-up gramophone in Hawthorne. which was called a panatrobe in those days. You might be familiar with them. They're something of an antique now. But they play those heavy old vinyl uh, shellac 78 records, and you had to change the steel needle after each playing. You might be... Uh, familiar with that and so from a very early age I'd go down to my grandparents home and pretend I was Norman Banks and put on an old 78 record and I'd cut out all the ads from the paper and uh, start reading them oh lovely 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 whole proof hosiery and uh, more Miller mum and uh, I think my parents worried about me as you're aware my father being a psychiatrist 
was rather concerned that I was talking to myself and uh, he wondered what this was going to lead to. But I was talking into a uh, a broom and uh, pretending I was on air. And, and Paul, I took it so seriously when I had my own little gramophone here at home in queue out in the laundry, I would actually get up at 5.30 in the morning, I'd set the alarm and do a breakfast session out there and pretend I was Norman Swain or Kevin O'Gorman, Phil Gibbs or John Ford. And, uh, of course, this was a great cause for concern, especially for my psychiatrist father. Yes, I could imagine. Now, as a child growing up, it's always great when you can find a like mind to share experiences and adventures with. In your case, it was a kid from Wesley College by the name of Pete Smith. Can you tell us about that early friendship and a radio program called Brody's Hideaway? Oh, yes. Well, uh, Pete lived in Kew. Uh, he was a Wesley, as you know. I was a Xavier. But because we were neighbours, uh, he uh, he had left school. He was already at the ABC and doing well for himself. We're talking about the mid-50s here when we were about 16 years of age, 17 years of age. And Pete had a, a set-up under his garage in Yarravale Road, uh, 3KW, he called his station. And I think he wired up two or three of the neighbours so that they picked up our uh, our programs. And in those days, it was a mix of the old 78 records, the new 45s, and uh, the LP vinyl records as well. We had quite a music collection between us, and uh, that's where we honed our craft. And, uh, you know, we'd not only play music, but we'd sort of chat into the... Uh, the real microphone that Pete had, oh boy, we really come a long way. We were actually broadcasting, even though it was only the three or four houses, but it was a bit like Nicky and Graham on 3UZ in the mornings, or, uh, you know, there was no, we didn't have any talkback radio, but uh, we sort of kept a lot of tapes from those years, Broody being sort of an abbreviation of Brady, and uh, uh, I'm still looking at half a dozen of those tapes which we have today, which would be fun to play. In fact, if ever you want access to any of them, Paul, you are very welcome. Well, they would be fascinating listening. Now, Lee Murray was the man you turned to to hone your voice for a media career. So what did you learn from Mr. Murray? I think I learned how to project my voice, and I also learned how to read commercials. When I left Xavier, I was so keen to get into radio, and I... I knocked on doors here, there, and everywhere, and I was told by the different program managers, oh, no, you have to go to the country. You've had no experience. And I was so happy at home living with my parents that I decided, oh, no, that's not for me. And so I went to Lee Murray in Exhibition Street to learn voice production, and within two weeks of starting the course, he had a a phone call from Tom Miller at Channel 9, who was the producer of In Melbourne Tonight. And Tom said, uh, Lee, we need a temporary booth announcer for only two weeks. Have you got somebody in mind? Lee sent me along to Channel 9 on Good Friday, 1958. I read some commercials in the booth, voiceover man, got the job, and what initially uh, Paul was supposed to be a a two-week engagement turned out first time around to be 13 years of GDV9. And, and, of course, Pete came a bit later. Pete was then at the ABC. He was uh, on both Channel 2 and uh, Radio Australia and 3LO and 3AR. 
But in 1964, when I wanted to go abroad for a year, I took leave of absence and Pete replaced me at Channel 9. That's when he came across from the ABC and he's been there for 59 years. Now you mentioned there that the Channel 9 gig was when you were 18 years of age. Was that a daunting or exciting experience for someone so young? Oh, it was terrific. Television was so new. TV had only begun with the Olympic Games around November of 56. In Melbourne tonight, started in May 1957. And by Good Friday 1958, I was part of the team. And even though I was only engaged to be a voiceover man, within a couple of weeks, Graham Kennedy thankfully took a shine to me, thought, oh, we can have some fun at Phillips' expense. And so I became part of the Melbourne Tonight team with Joff Ellen and Rosie Sturgis, along with Bill McCormick and Evie Hayes and Tommy Hanlon Jr. And uh, Graham took great delight in sending me up and making fun of me because I was sort of a bit naive straight out of school. I think he thought I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth because all the other Channel 9 announcers had paid their dues. They'd started off in radio. Uh, and I'm talking about Hal Todd, I'm talking about Bob Horsfall, I'm talking about Jeff His, uh, Jeff Cork, and here I am, you know, coming in a naive schoolboy. And, and so Graham really, well, first of all, he started calling me Dimples, which I resented enormously. I hated that, made me feel like Shirley Temple. But then he'd be really mean to me and tell me that he, he hoped I'd choke on my Sir Christopher medal or even, even trip over my rosary beads. Possibly comments you might not get away with today, Phil. Now, the purchase of 3AK by GTV in the early 60s exposed both you and most of the Channel 9 roster to radio in, I might say, the most primitive of studio conditions. What do you remember about one of your first programs, your favourites, and mine? Oh, yeah, you've done your research. Yes, by 1961, when Television City purchased 3AK, which was... Only a 12-hour operation at a time. We're on the same wavelength as Bathurst, New South Wales. So we could only operate between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. because the signal overlapped. But all of us, including Eric Pierce and the, and the other announcers I mentioned earlier, including Bert Newton, including Graham Kennedy, we were all expected to do a, a shift each day on 3AK for free. That was part of our arrangement with the station. And mine was uh, something of a request program. But it was very primitive, Paul. The, uh, the studio was, in fact, a very rickety caravan. And it was in the uh, pool area outside Channel 9 by the swimming pool. And uh, you'd introduce a Johnny Mathis song. Say, here's Johnny Mathis to sing Chances Are. Well, somebody would walk into that caravan and uh, that needle would bounce around on the record. And... Uh, <laughs> By, by the time the song ended, there was a different song altogether. You jumped about four tracks to Wonderful, Wonderful. And uh, so that was part of the fun of, of operating in a shaky old caravan for the first year or two. But it was my first taste of professional radio, which I really loved because, as I told you, I'd knocked on doors and been knocked back. Uh, in fact, Eddie Barmer at 3KZ said to me, I'll always remember his exact words, he said, we don't have a job for you because you are lacking in the sum total of human experience. Yes, a gentle way to let you down, no doubt. Now, you mentioned names such as Hell Todd, Jeff Cork, Jeff Hiscock, and, of course, Graham Burt and Eric Pierce, 
all part of Channel 9 in the 60s and all part of 3AK. Now, with television being so new and exciting at the time, was the involvement in AK seen as a burden, a challenge, a distraction, or just a bit of fun? Oh, no, no. we all all enjoyed uh, doing the radio side of it. In fact, Graham Kennedy had a studio set up at his home at Oliver's Hill, and uh, you might be too young to know that Bert Newton would travel down there every morning and do the program with Graham from his from his home. No, no, we all looked on uh, that as as sort of an extracurricular activity. And once Pete Smith joined from uh, the ABC, he probably told you previously that he had his own weekend uh, DJ show. The penthouse party, uh, and so all of us who were part of the Channel Nine roster, we all made an appearance on Three AK every day, and uh, and loved doing it. And and that led to me doing radio elsewhere later on in my career. But I guess I was mainly a child of television, the exception to the rule, Paul, because everybody else who was a part of the Channel Nine team, as I mentioned earlier, that all started in radio, some of them in country radio and they'd uh, graduated to TV later. I was the exception where I, I started my life in TV and, and then radio became a part of it much later. And to this very day, I, I, I cherish the fact that I've got a program once a week, even at the age of 84. I'm still actively engaged in the medium, for which I'm, uh, I'm very grateful. Now, Phil, by 1969, the format had well and truly changed, and you were part of the 3AK Good Guys, with names such as Graham Boyd, Bill Howie, Lionel York, and of course, Grantly D, presenting a format that I assume was trying to take on the all-conquering 3UZ at the time. Yeah, possibly was, but over the years, starting in 1961 and until 1985, I, I did five different uh, formats on 3AK over those years. You know uh, the good guys and and the easy listening and uh, and various formats. I I think by '69 we were still playing a lot of album tracks, and of course CDs didn't come in till the mid '80s. But uh, by then I'd moved on to radio on the Gold Coast. Now around about that time the station had gone 24 hours and added names such as Gary Mack, Alan Aiken, Mike Nichols to the roster. Could you feel that the station was starting to focus on a, on a harder edge in terms of both presentation and even music content? It never rated that well. Um, you know. And by 1977 when uh, 3MP came on the air from Prankston, they often dominated the ratings, especially weekends. Uh, 3AK always seemed to be perhaps because of the wavelength is sort of the uh, the poor sister to the other Melbourne music stations I can't recall a time ever when the station was was number one despite having a strong lineup of well-known personalities ABC Andrea Norman Banks Corinne too Daytime Nighttime On your side Radio now, your first association with 3AW came in the 70s, working weekends. Now, that was at a time when AW was very talkback focused throughout the week. But what was your brief on the weekends? Oh, a very good question you asked. 
I was uh, the weekend music man uh, in the uh, summer season when there was no footy, but even through the winter months when there was a bye or there were no games on or doing Saturday night uh, ships, six-hour music ships they were, and I alternated those with uh, Jeff Mannion and Peter James, who were on staff at 3AW. I joined up in 1971 as their weekend music man and stayed until 1979. And interesting, Paul, how I got my marching orders. Uh, you know, it was very much a talkback station, as you said. But the then program director called me in in 1979. He shall remain nameless, but he had come back from New York. He was a local guy, but came back with a phony New York accent and called me in one day and said, uh, look, you're no longer doing the weekend music programs because uh, you don't sound enough like Darren Hinch. Darren, of course, was doing mornings at 3AW, and I said, but but Darren's doing talkback. I'm a music man. Uh, there's no connection. He said, no, but he said, Darren Hinch is the sound of 3AW, so we'll have to let you go. So I couldn't wait to tune in the next weekend to find out who replaced me and who sounded more like Darren Hinch than I did, and it turned out to be Helen Jackson. Helen Jackson, now there's a name from the past. Helen, I think, uh, Phil, was probably a little ahead of her time in radio. <laughs> yeah, she obviously had that Darren Hinch touch that I liked, all right? <laughs> Everything I do, I do for Now, Phil, you did spend some time on the other side of the glass producing Bert Newton's morning show on 3UZ. Now, you were, of course, well aware of Bert's ability in front of the television camera. How was he behind the microphone? Well, uh, he and I were very involved, not only at that time with 3UZ, but I was part of all Bert's TV shows. He was very kind to me, whether it was Ford Super Quiz, whether it was New Faces, uh, whatever he was doing at the time, and later, Good Morning Australia. But always tried to involve Pete Smith and myself, uh, you know, as his second banana. And so in 1981, 82 and 83, for three years I was producing his top-rating morning show, three years yet. It was very demanding, Paul, because I had to be in there by seven every morning and I had to line up ten guests a day for Bert. Uh, you know, everybody from, uh, from Bob Hawke to Tony Lamond, whoever was in the news at that time, not only line up 10 guests, but write an intro for them, write questions for each of the guests. And and that went on for three years. Plus, by night time, I was back at Channel 9 doing warm-ups with the audience for the Don Lane show. And so Bert and I almost lived in each other's pockets day and night. But it was very challenging being behind the scenes. Not easy when you've got a, an 8.30 a.m. deadline to get your guests lined up. When uh, you know people like Malcolm Fraser could be very unhelpful and uncooperative, and you know at times you'd 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 have some of these uh, politicians hanging up on you or not waiting on the line, it, it it was very challenging for me, but but very rewarding, and uh, it was three years of my life that I look back on with a lot of a lot of delight. Bert Newton being such a a wonderful human being, and. Uh, We'd known each other all our lives. We're like, like Pete Smith and myself, we're like brothers, you know. 
Yeah. So what did you learn from that experience of producing that you were able to use and assisted you further down the track? Well, well, I think I think it gave me the best contact book in the in Melbourne. I uh, I organised all sorts of wonderful guests for, but including Johnny Cass, Johnny Carson. Sorry, you can probably hear my dog in the background. He's he's a bit of a ham. He wants to join in. He wants to be wants to be a part of this. It's a bit of a distraction. Yes, I I had a lot of joy lining up very famous personalities for Bert for his morning show. Uh, Johnny Carson, I think, was perhaps the biggest scoop of all because being the king of nighttime uh, variety in America, he just wasn't doing any media at all. The week before, he'd refused a Time magazine front cover, and yet he agreed for me to do a, a chat with Bert. So uh, we spoke with a lot of famous people from that era. We're talking early 80s when uh, actors like uh, Walter Pidgeon and uh, band leaders like Rudy Valley were available. We we had a wonderful selection of Broadway guests like Ethel Merman and and Mary Martin, and uh, it was it was just terrific to be rubbing shoulders. We'd have wonderful studio guests who'd be in town. The likes of uh, actors like uh, Anthony Perkins from uh, from the Psycho movie, and we were just rubbing shoulders with because Bert was rating number one. Everybody was jumping on the bandwagon, wanted to be on his show, and it was very easy finding the guests. And uh, I obviously kept that contact book, and uh, through the years, I've phoned several of those people since. Uh, you know, for my own program, uh, you know, people like Clint Eastwood and uh, and Kerry Grant, uh, Lee Marvin. It, it's rather rather handy having their home phone numbers, you know. Absolutely. Now you've worked at two iconic addresses in the history of Australian media: Bendigo Street in Richmond with Channel Nine, and Forty Five Burke Street in Melbourne at Three UZ. Now, did UZ still have that magic feel to the station when you were there? Oh, look, you've asked a wonderful question because the answer is. By the time I started working with Bert Newton in 1981, Paul, they had moved to Barclay Street, Carlton by then. They were no longer at the top of Burke Street. So even though I'd visited uh, 45 Burke Street on occasions over the years, by the time I started working with Bert, we had moved to Carlton by then. As you mentioned, there were plenty of trips back to 3AK, this time with the nice and easy format, with the likes of Andrew McLaren, Ward Everett, Binny Lum, Peter James, just to name a few. Interesting times there back at the station? Yeah, but sadly, you know, uh, so many, as Pete Smith would have told you recently, so many of our uh, colleagues have, have passed on. It's, it's really tragic. Several names that we've mentioned today, like the three announcers on the roster when I joined Channel 9, they're all gone now. We're talking about Jeff Cork, Hal Todd, Bob Horsfall, uh, Benny Lam, you've mentioned. We talked about Jeff Hiscock, uh, and, and obviously Tommy Hanlon, Eric Pierce, Evie Hayes. They've all long gone now. I think Pete Smith and I might be the only two people in Melbourne who are still actively engaged from the very start of TV, which is, uh, rather sad to relate to you. Many have either passed away or some are now in aged care. Indeed. Now, you're a Melbourne boy through and through, but in the mid-80s, there was a move to Easy Listening 97 up there in Tweed Heads, which lasted for five years. 
So what shift were you working there, and was it back to an all-music format? Well, the reason I went up there, Paul, was there was nothing happening in Melbourne. I started up at Easy Listening on Australia Day 1986, but uh, 3AK had dumped me about six months earlier uh, as their uh, weekend music man, and uh, there was nothing happening at Channel 9. Earlier, Channel 9 had had a purge, and 128 of us who were involved with Variety there, we all went on the same day. That included the entire Channel 9 Orchestra, the Channel 9 Ballet, the Channel 9 Chorus, all the uh, In Melbourne Tonight identities are, are fondly remembered. I think Pete's the only, Pete Smith's the only one who hung on to his job. But by mid-1985, I was really in limbo, and I had a call from Barry Ferber at 4GG in Service Paradise. He also had a connection with Easy Listening 97, which was on the Tweed Coast, and offered me a six-month engagement. And I thought, well, I've really got nothing to lose. There's nothing happening down here for me currently. And so I packed up with my uh, Weimaraner Luke, and we made our way to Coolangatta. And uh, I had a morning shift there, 9 till 12, at Easy Listening 97, as you know. And enjoyed it so much, I, I stayed longer than six months. I, I, in fact, stayed five years. And the advantage, Paul, was that being there on the coast, right on the border with Queensland and New South Wales, there were so many uh, clubs up there, like Seagulls, Twin Towns, all the bowling clubs, and they all had first-rate entertainment all the time. It was like Las Vegas. So it wasn't unusual for me one morning to be interviewing Petula Clark, and the next morning, Shirley Bassey, and we had groups like the Monkeys came through, America, uh, all sorts of top-rate acts who were playing uh, Tweet Heads. And uh, so I had the cream of the guests to choose from every morning. And uh, so, yes, it was a music format, but also I used to do interviews. I had, uh, in my contact book, access to overseas artists like George Burns and Bob Hope and uh, also to Perry Como and uh, to Bet Betty Davis. And uh, so the morning show became something of a celebrity interview show. And uh, like I outstayed my welcome at Channel 9, I guess I decided to outstay my welcome at 97 too. So obviously you're well known in Melbourne through both radio and more importantly television. So was your standing in the media well known by the good folk of Tweed Heads when you arrived or were you just another new announcer in town? No, well thankfully I've done a lot of national television over the years uh, apart from appearing with Graham Kennedy on his uh, variety shows. Uh, by the late 1960s, Reg Grundy had engaged me to do panel games and quiz shows such as Everybody's Talking, the Money Makers, Casino 10, Get the Message, Password, and uh, all these shows, five days, five nights a week, they continued on well into the mid-1970s, and then Graham Kennedy picked me up for Blankety Blanks. So um, I'd been something of a national identity of, you know, for many years before I joined up on the Tweed Coast. So I guess when they, they heard my voice, I guess they, they had a mental image of me as well, for better or for worse. <laughs>
So I suppose the story from here on in revolves around an invitation from John Hindle, doing afternoons on AW at the time, who invited you in for an on-air chat. Well, absolutely. I, I, now, the reason I came back from from uh, the Gold Coast was, and I, I had a, you know, I had a wonderful lifestyle up there. I was living at Fingal on the northern New South Wales coast, but I was right on the water. I I, I didn't even have to cross a road. Uh, my my home that I was renting was in sand dunes, and I was overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And every morning I'd go down with uh, my Waimarana Luke. And we walk along the ocean, uh, sand, and uh, dolphins would come and greet us every morning and and uh, keep pace with us up and down the uh, the sand. And now the reason I came home after five years was a I was a bit homesick. Uh, I'd, I'd lent my home out to family, uh, and and I was flying back a lot for television. I, I had a lot of engagements with Steve Izard on Tonight Live and also the DGEN's Late Show on the ABC. So I was backwards and forwards flying every week from Coolangatta to Melbourne to fulfill television commitments, and it sort of didn't make sense to be up there on the Gold Coast, uh, you know, when I was in demand back home. So reluctantly, I did come home just before Christmas in 1990. I was just had my 50th birthday by then, and had no job prospects at all. Until, as you say, John Hindle uh, gave me a call and said, hey, you're my man of the week. Thanks for doing the phoner with me like we're doing now. Come in and pick up a hamper. It's our way of saying thank you. And in fact, the very day I went into 3AW in Latrobe Street and picked up this food hamper, I bumped into Steve Price, who was then program director. He said, look, we're just starting up uh, Remember When with, uh, with Bruce Mansfield. This was... Christmas 1990, we're looking for a partner for Bruce. Would you like to come on board? And so Bruce and I were engaged for Remember When on Sunday nights, but within three months, Paul, uh, the Reverend Alex Kenworthy had left 3AW under something of a cloud, and we were given the trial run for two weeks of Nightline. That was March 1991. And... uh, that lasted almost 30 years. Sadly, Bruce passed away in 2016. I continued doing the show with uh, Simon Owens for two or three years, and still all these years later a part of, of 3AW on a Sunday night. Now, Philip, you obviously knew of Bruce, but had you ever worked together before, and was the chemistry instantaneous, or did it evolve over time? Yeah, look, that's a terrific question. I met Bruce way back in 1961. Uh, you know, I'd been at Channel 9 three years by then. And Bruce came in and sat in the audience of in Melbourne tonight one night. And I was introduced to him by Ray Lawrence. Bruce and Ray were announcers together at 3XY then. And within a couple of years, Bruce also became part of the announcers roster at Channel 9. And yeah, we appeared on in Melbourne tonight together. We were on telethons together, and even then he was a very funny man. I, I used to say to him, Bruce, I can't work with you. You, you cracked me up, I'm doubling up with laughter. He had a wonderful sense of humour. So, yes, even though we didn't work on radio together till 1990, we'd been friends and colleagues for about 30 years before that, which I think helped the chemistry, Paul. 
So, 25 years of Nightline, six days a week of keeping each other company, national radio awards and a power of loyal listeners who hung off every word that you said. So what is the secret to a successful on-air partnership and how did you keep it fresh? I think the fact that we we were really poles apart. Bruce's whole life was his uh, eight grandchildren. My whole life was really travelling overseas and whichever dog I had at the time, often they... Uh, a Weimarana, we, we just had totally different interests. We tried not to come together during the day. We tried not to communicate before we turned on our mics. So at 8 o'clock every night when we said hi, it was fresh because we were discovering for the first time what we'd been up to that day. Uh, I, I think the secret of our success was that we were such different individuals and uh, there was no competition between us really, but we just didn't have much in common. Uh, and I'll give you an example. We, we wrote three or four books together through the years. And, and when we'd go to book signings, we'd go in separate cars because if we travelled together, we just couldn't think of anything to say to each other. And the silence was rather embarrassing. <laughs> That's the truth. Now, it wasn't all smooth sailing when in 1999 the station and Bruce parted company due to cash for comment allegations, with Bruce eventually returning in 2001. Did you think at the time that maybe this might be the end of a really good run? And how disruptive to you was it at that time? Well, yes, uh, Bruce got caught out, unfortunately, and possibly unfairly, too, uh, for cash for comment. People like Alan Jones and John Laws were accused of, of the same misdemeanor in Sydney and uh, they tallied up many offences and they stayed on there. They weren't penalised at all, but poor Bruce uh, was sacrificed and was off air for a whole 12 months. 3AW were very supportive of me. Uh, I kept doing Nightline for a time with Paul Cronin and then Darren Hinch replaced me. But they kept me on staff on full salary for only doing Remember When on a Sunday night, which I think was very uh, generous of them. And then after a year, they forgave Bruce and brought him back. And uh, we started up again where we'd left off and uh, then did another 15 years or so together until until about 2017 when he died. Um, But he was a bit unlucky to get caught out. I think his offences were very minor. When you look back on them, it was just perhaps a bit of uh, payola, cash for comment, and uh, unfortunately he was a scapegoat. September 2019, and the curtain came down on a Melbourne institution hosting a Melbourne institution. So, Phil, was the time right? Was there still more petrol in the tank? And four years on, was it the right decision? Oh, yeah. Look, you're asking wonderful questions. Uh, What happened was I had turned 80 that year and uh, there was a change of of, uh, control from Sydney. Uh, Channel 9 had just bought out the uh, radio network, 3AW radio network, and I think the decision was made in Sydney as they were sort of uh, making the transition from Macquarie Radio to uh, Channel 9's purchase that they were going to sort of 
make a bit of a clean sweep and uh, unfortunately I was sacrificed. Yeah, I still think I had a lot more to give, but um, but I... Uh, look, the actress Beth Davis once said to me, she said, getting old is not for sissies. <laughs> and it's so true, you know, your health is everything. And I imagine 3AW, in their concern for my welfare, thought, oh, you know, Philip could have a fall on the stairs or he could collapse behind the microphone or whatever. I think they were running scared a bit. Yes, I'm still involved, as you know, on a on a Sunday night, uh, and occasionally I'm called in for other commitments. But I, I think there's a bit of life left in the old dog yet, Paul. Yes, Phil, that's absolutely true. Now, listen, a couple of quick questions. Now, besides your time up in Tweed Heads, you've barely moved more than a kilometre away from your original family home. What's special about that queue area? Oh, well, uh, so many people, I think, gravitate towards their childhood uh, home. My father was, uh, as we discussed at the start, psychiatrist superintendent at the Kew Cottages and prior to that, Willsmere, which had been called the Kew Lunatic Asylum, which is very cruel. But we actually lived on Crown land, a government land, right at the cottages uh, because of his uh, work commitments. And so for the first 28 years of my life, I was living in Will Street, Q, uh, very, very close to all the inmates of the cottages and in in Willsmere Hospital. And then when my father retired in 1967, uh, they bought, my parents, they bought another home also in Q. Uh, which I moved into, and uh, in fact, when my parents eventually passed on in the 1970s, I inherited the house, and, uh, and I've stayed here ever since. So apart from living on the Gold Coast for five years, I virtually only lived in two different homes in my whole life, and I believe that's quite rare because I read recently where on average, on average, people move 11 times in a lifetime, but not me. Now, of course, there was a time when you did take on the duties of a travel agent. What destination did you enjoy promoting most? And do you have a favourite holiday experience? Yeah, thanks for asking me that. I, 1971, things again were a bit grim. Um, that was the year that Channel 9 sacked 128 of us on the same day. Uh, there wasn't a lot happening for me. And uh, my buddy Don Lunn uh, from Three Years at Breakfast He'd just started up a travel agency in Morris for Pan Am Airways and asked me if I'd like to join him as his PR guy. And so, in fact, uh, for about six months there where the phone wasn't ringing too much, I was taking myself down to Morris every day and writing airline tickets for his clients. And, and in answer to your question, you know, a favourite destination, people who are going overseas for the very first time they say, where should we head? And I always recommend this trip to them because I think it's the best scenery in the world. The first timers, if you're venturing abroad and you haven't been before, let me recommend flying to Vancouver and then doing two things. Catching the Rocky Mountaineer train to Jasper, Lake Louise and Calgary and Banff. Uh, doing the Doing the Canadian Rockies by train and then making your way back to Vancouver and catching a cruise ship up to Alaska. I highly recommend the scenery. Well, I've quickly scribbled down those details, Phil, and hopefully Canada might be on my next trip overseas. A question for you. At 3AW, Talkback Radio, 
When Toby from Newport called, who reacted quicker, the hosts or the producer? Oh, occasionally we have to, to dump calls and uh, uh, Toby's call has become legendary because uh, it would appear it's on the internet and people are still talking about it to this day. But, you know, it's not unusual. It was only last Sunday night that we interviewed John Laws on Remember When and uh, I'm very surprised to tell you that uh, during the chat with John Laws, he actually dropped the F bomb on air at 9.15 on the Sunday night on Remember When. <laughs> Unfortunately, Paul, our producer at the time was too slow to pick it up. <laughs> Instead of word deleting it, I'm afraid it went out on the airwaves. This was only last Sunday night, and I'm really surprised that a professional like John Laws would use language like that in prime time. Uh, mm. But it happened. And it's happened in the past with people trying to tell crude stories or, or shock us with, with their language. And uh, you just need to be quick enough with that dump button. Oh, by the way, this is something no one knows. I'm probably the only broadcaster in the world who has dumped himself. And I'll tell you how it happened. Uh, the showbiz reporter, Peter Ford, a few years ago, threw a wonderful Christmas party to which I was invited and half of uh, Melbourne was there, Peter Mitchell and Peter Hitchner and uh, Jackie Folgate and anyone you care to think of, they were all there. And I said to Peter, oh, can I talk about the party on air? And he said, yes, you're very welcome to mention it. He said, but don't bring up my name, he said, because people are going to be disappointed they weren't invited. So this is me, big mouth on the air, the next Sunday night, telling Bruce all about Peter Ford's party. And... <laughs> Forgetting that I wasn't allowed to mention his name, <laughs> it was too late. I'd said it was Peter Ford's party, and I'm the one who hit the dump button and censored myself. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a radio first to me. Finally, Phil, we know times change and progress is inevitable, but do you ever drive down Bendigo Street in Richmond? And if you do, how do you feel? Uh, yeah, occasionally I do come home that way, Paul, and uh, it's on my way to queue, and... Uh, uh, with a tinge of sadness, when I think back, um, it was not only the first 13 years of my career there, but, you know, over the years, I was back there for shows with um, Ernie Sigley and, and Jimmy Hannon and Bert Newton, and, and Graham kept coming back doing national shows. And so, you know, my my connection with Channel 9 has been very long-standing. There was a time there where I was reading the Saturday night news on TV. I bet you didn't know that. There was a time there where I was doing the children's show as Prince Philip. bet you didn't know that. So, uh, you know, my involvement with Channel 9 is, is a very emotional bond. And uh, to drive past there, uh, past the ghosts of, of yesteryear, uh, there's a tinge of sadness for me. And... Uh, no regrets, but just gratitude that that for a guy who really was not an entertainer, I mean, I don't sing, I don't dance, I don't tell jokes. I've been very blessed in my career. I don't know how I've got away with it for so long, but <laughs> long may it continue.
Okay, Philip, we have 12 standard questions we ask all our guests. The first one being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? Well, you know, I've pondered that question and I really, really can't recall where I was when that happened. But I can tell you where I was when Elvis died. Sorry, that'll be a, a replacement answer because I was actually in Bali with a group of uh, tourists. Uh, I was to a leader and... Uh, the day before we'd been in Singapore, and I'd actually bought an Elvis cassette, his very last uh, recording of Moody Blue. And so the very next day, here I am in Bali to learn that it was August 1977 that he passed away. So I, I can't give you an answer on John Lennon, but the, the next best is, is Elvis. What was the last concert ticket you paid for? Very interesting. I've been a guest most times of the promoters in return for the publicity I give them. But I was always a big fan of the Beach Boys, and Brian Wilson was coming to the Palais St Kilda a few years ago, and although I got my tickets to the show for free, I did spend $500 for a meet and greet. I thought, oh, this guy is a legend. And so in return for a handshake and a photo with Brian and a couple of souvenirs, T-shirts and, and stuff, I did spend $500 on just the chance to spend a few minutes with Brian, which which I don't think he remembers. I think he was, <laughs> I think he was on another trip that night he came to Melbourne. <laughs> Is there a concert act you regret never seeing? Uh, well, I almost missed out on Elvis. In 1975, I was pally with Red West, and he was Elvis's bodyguard at the time. They'd gone to school together. Red was an actor in Hollywood. He was in a TV series called Bar Bar Black Sheep. He said, would you like to come and see Elvis ringside? I wasn't really a big fan, but I did get to the concert. So first of all, that negates your question. But I was invited to meet Elvis after the show. And you won't believe this, Paul, but I said, oh, Red, look, I'd love to come backstage. I said, but I've got tickets to go and see Diana Ross at Caesars Palace. I said, I'll have to move on. And Red said, oh, come on, just just 10 minutes. Elvis loves meeting Australians. And I said, look, it'll have to be another time. And that's my big regret because, of course, the year was 1975, and within two years, Elvis was dead. Well, Philip, if you suggested that you're the first person on radio to dump button themselves out, I'd also suggest you're the first person on radio to actually not back a meeting with Elvis Presley. But anyway, let's move on. Word you had most trouble pronouncing on air. Yeah, funnily enough, it's a word I heard uh, Dennis Walter the other night, uh, and and I've heard I've heard Mel Walton on uh, Eyewitness News. The three of us seem to have a problem with the word phenomenon. <laughs> hey, I said it. I said it. Phenomenon. That for me is a tricky word, as is the word patented something that's been invented, something that's been patented. But if I say it slowly and I concentrate, it comes out all right. So, Philip, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those don't-come-Monday orders? Oh, yes, or well, maybe. One night in the booth at Channel 9 and the voiceover, the slides in those days, they didn't have uh, elaborate promos on air in those days, just they'd change slides while I would say things like stay tuned to Channel 9 now for Gene Barry stay tuned to Channel 9 for Gene Barry 
in Bat Masterson, next on Channel 9. But one night I, I happened to slip up and say, stay tuned to Channel 9 now for Matt Bastardson. I, I, I didn't get the pink slip, I got away with it. Now, back in those music jock days, did you have a preference for Skyhooks or Sherbet? They all break right there with, uh, with Sherbet, for sure. 1977, how's that? Classic track. Rolling Stones or The Beatles? Always The Beatles, never a huge Mick Jagger fan. Philip, the most treasured piece of memorabilia from your early radio days? Yeah, well, I've 3AW moved studios several times. First time around, they were still at 382 La Trobe Street when I joined up, and that was back in the Norman Banks, Ormsby Wilkins, Claudia Wright era, and, you know, that was back in the days of Alex Kimworthy and Martha Gardner, Mary Hardy, all those wonderful people. And... Uh, then before we moved down to Bank Street in South Melbourne, and before they demolished the studio, our producer on Remember When, Ken Francis, popped into AW one night very late when they were demolishing the building and happened to get hold of a brick for me from the old 382 Latrobe Street. And he had a, a gold plaque put on that brick for me, which I, which I treasure because it's, a part of the history of Melbourne and uh, a fond memory of, of my first time round at 3AW, which, as we discussed earlier, started way back in 1971. The biggest news story that broke while you were on air? biggest news story that broke during Nightline would have been, uh, tragically, 9-11. And everybody says, oh, oh yes, we were listening the night you and Bruce broke the story and, and you thought that a small plane had hit the World Trade Centre. Actually, I wasn't even there. Everybody gives me credit that I was on here with Bruce and that I alerted him to the fact that the uh, tragedy had occurred. But I was I was not there. It was Paul Cronin on there with Bruce that night. I was actually on leave and in the Canadian Rockies that tragic night. So uh, I guess I wasn't a part of history, but a lot of people give me credit for it. Uh, something that I was aware of and will live with me always. Bruce and I were on air the day of the uh, the Port Arthur massacre and that was very hard to handle. That had started earlier in the day during the footy broadcast but of course continued over the whole weekend. Philip, is there a moment that someone walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck? Uh, yeah, doesn't doesn't really happen to me. Uh, too often, I've I've had some wonderful people come by my studio through the years. Uh, I've I've actually, you know, I've interviewed Clint Eastwood. I've interviewed Sophia Loren, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, Charlie Chaplin. Of course, they didn't all come to Melbourne, but uh, uh, somebody who really impressed me was Robert Wise. He was the director of The Sound of Music, among other movies, and one of the most intelligent men I've ever met, obviously with a very high IQ, but I found him uh, highly entertaining and, and I felt very humbled in his presence because he was a much awarded director, as you'll agree, of many classic movies and it was rather a privilege to be in his company. The best words of advice from a program manager? Yes, I think we'll go back to Eddie Barmer at 3KZ and uh, 
it was about 45 minutes ago that I told you that when I approached 3KZ for a job, I was told, son, you are lacking in the sum total of human experience. And very wise words indeed. Philip, are there a couple of albums or LPs that you'd consider to be the soundtrack of your teenage early 20 years? Yeah, okay, Paul. Well, um, I'll mention the very first LP that I had, and it was only a small 10-inch one. You might be aware that, you know, the LP record wasn't invented till 1948. But by the mid-50s, some of them were 12 inches and some were smaller, 10 inches. And my first uh, soundtrack LP was Mario Lanza singing songs from the movie The Student Prince. That That's one of my uh, fondest early memories. And I became a big fan of Perry Como, and he and I later became good buddies over the phone. He lived in Florida. We never met face-to-face, but I always in, enjoyed um, adding a Perry Como album to my collection. Finally, Philip, how proud were you to receive the Order of Australia Medal? Well, I, yeah, I felt very undeserving about that. As I said to you earlier, and it isn't false modesty, I, I'm really not an entertainer. And the fact that, that Paul, even today, talking to you, the fact I've got away with this for 65 years so far, uh, I feel a bit of a phony. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I think I was also being rewarded. I've done a fair share of charity work over the years. Maybe that was part of the equation. But uh, again, a very humbling experience and one which I treasure. Okay, Philip, let's get one thing straight. You are an entertainer, and your contribution to Australian media has been more than significant. It's been outstanding. Thank you so much for your time today, and please pass on my thanks to Oro, your dog, for his endorsements as well. It's been a pleasure reminiscing. Well, Paul, it's been such an honour to be on. Uh, uh, Pete Smith, I know, did it recently, and uh, he was raving about it, and uh, you are very in- intuitive and erudite, and... Uh, I really appreciated your questioning. It's uh, been a delight to be a part of it, and I, I wish you well. And uh, it's sort of like a eulogy. I feel like I've, I've, I've died and gone to heaven. But, but thank you for including me, and uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for what's happened this afternoon. Philip Brady on Pilots of the Airwaves.